Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast. My name is Mike Navina, and thanks for hanging out with me today. My guest today is Matt Rossbang, who is a Memphis-based engineer who owns Southern Grooves, which is an awesome studio. He just built this, but uh, man, you got to check out the studio. Just like check out the website, check out the pictures, check out everything that's coming out of it. It's just such a, a cool place that has a lot of character and a lot of vibe to it. And it kind of makes sense because Matt is an engineer who first got his start as an intern at Sun Studios when he was 16. And he's someone who who learned a lot of this analog, older style of recording, and it's carried with him throughout the years. He continues to work on a lot of the same styles of music, and he continues to implement a lot of these vintage recording techniques into modern day productions. And it's really cool. Matt has a completely different approach to recording than I personally have, but I'm super fascinated with the sound he gets and the the different techniques that he uses. And he's someone who is very thoughtful throughout his whole process. And in this interview, he goes into a lot of detail about the intention behind all of the decisions that he makes and how he really embraces imperfection. You know, like a lot of times, especially in modern recordings, we talk about how everything's got to be perfect and you have to have everything super edited or super clean. And, you know, you can't you can't have bleed in your recordings and all that kind of stuff. Matt just throws that all out the window and he's just got a completely different approach. But I think when you hear how he does it, it seems like such a fun way to record and such a fun way to work. So I definitely took a lot from this interview myself and definitely want to implement a lot of his philosophies on stuff. And I think you're going to learn a lot from this episode as well. So if you're the type of person who really shies away from committing to sounds or uh, committing to bleed and that kind of stuff, I think you're going to learn a lot from this interview and just learn to embrace the good stuff that can actually come from some of this imperfection and also just embrace simplicity because that's another big thing that comes up a lot throughout this interview is just dialing things back and not overcomplicating the process. Just be simple about it and don't overthink it. And uh, yeah, I think you're going to learn a lot from this episode. So let's just jump right into it. Matt Ross Spang, thank you so much for being on the Master Mix podcast. What's going on, man? Thanks, Mike. I'm happy to be here with you virtually. Appreciate it. For people who might not know you and who aren't familiar with your background or the types of projects that you're working on these days, can you give us that story on how you got into music and ultimately into production? Well, I'm pretty sure that's everybody. Uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, I, uh, Matt Rossbang, I'm, I'm from Memphis, Tennessee, born and raised. And I um, first recorded in a studio when I was 14. It happened to be Sun Studio, where, where rock and roll was created and birthed. and um, I uh, watched the engineer record, and that's when I kind of switched my mind from, I like playing guitar to, I want to be the guy behind the board. Um, and so I started interning with him when I was 16, and I worked my way up from intern to chief engineer at Sun over the course of 11 years. And then I've been, for the last couple of years of that, I've been kind of curious about going um, independent and freelancing and, and being able to travel and work every, anywhere I could. So I actually left in 2015. Uh, and became an independent engineer and producer. And um, I worked a lot in Nashville with the the great producer Dave Cobb and and some other guys and, and was producing the whole time as well. And then uh, I kind of made a home base out of Sam Phillips Recording Service, which is a studio Sam built after Sun. I rented the B room and recorded in the A room quite a bit until 
couple, about two years ago, I started building, kind of my dream came true. I started building my own studio here at Crosstown Concourse in Memphis. The studio is called Southern Grooves, and we've been open since last March, so almost a year now. Amazing. Man, I imagine that like to get into Sun Studios is not an easy thing to get into. Like, you know, there's 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 a big history there. So uh, I imagine it's actually it's super uh, um, available to anybody. And that's what one of the best lessons I learned was when I started learning from the guy there. His name was James Lott was, um, you know, it's everyone's dream to record there uh, from all over the world. So you get people, it's one of the most unique studios in the world, not only in how it was built and what all was done there, but who all comes to record there. So, you know, when I was the engineer there, you might record, T-Bone Burnett might bring in John Mellencamp one night, and then you have literally an Elvis impersonator from Japan the next (laughs) night, you know? And it would be this wide-ranging thing, but they all had one thing in common. It was their dream to come true to record there. And what a great, um, way to record people, you know, even if the music wasn't great or the artists or their artistry or their musicianship wasn't great, they're having the time of your life and you're facilitating that. And, uh, it's, it's a great feeling. I had, I had so much fun there just making people feel at home and capturing the essence of them, whether it was, whether they were, you know, pros or, you know, unique enough or whatever. Um, just the, the, the feeling I had of, of making their helping their facilitate their dream and, and making them feel at ease and stuff was just a it was a blast. Even if the music wasn't particularly amazing or anything, it was just a great thing to be a part of. And so it really was a unique and great way for me to learn recording because I kind of like um I am not biased or like, oh, we got to hire another per- person to come play guitar because this guy can't play guitar. It made me really love how unique different people play their instruments, even if it's you know, when especially in recording, something can be bad, but then it can be so bad that it's awesome. You know, <laughs> it's great, and so it's like kind of finding those things and capturing those things. And so, so being there was a, a great uh, lesson in multiple ways for me. But yeah, the Sun, anyone can book time at Sun Studio. It, it was when I was there. I, I don't know what they charge now. It was super affordable, seventy five dollars an hour. Uh, we oh, we could start recording at six o'clock at night. Um, but you got everybody in there. I mean, anybody and everybody would come in there. That's amazing. Yeah, I mean, it, it's such a historic studio. And obviously, you know, like pe- people know that place just from, you know, like all the all the big artists that have that have been there. Yeah. Um, I imagine that there's like a large crowd of people that come there for that kind of like specific sound that it's known for, you know, like that that Southern sound. Certainly, it's like um, you know, Sun didn't have any booths. They had they had added a vocal booth and control room when I was there. I never really used it uh, when I became the head engineer. But uh, it's basically everyone recording live in a room together, and you can't put twenty mics in there. I mean, we didn't even have twenty mic stands for you to do that, but or probably <laughs> we didn't even probably have twenty mics to do that. But if you did more than like you know, if you did more than eight or nine mics in there, you're doing something wrong because the <laughs> snare is bleeding into the vocal mic because it's a the room is 18 by 30 with no boost. I built two baffles, but they were, you know, four four by four foot baffles. So they, they were going to keep everything out. But, you know, everything is reacting to everything. And so to, to learn how to record in a room like that is the best lesson ever because you can put something in a booth and put a mic on it and get the, a sound. Uh, but trying to get a great vocal when the snare drum is four feet away and the guy's hitting hard or the cymbals in the piano, that kind of stuff, getting that time aligned and phased properly and and capture a good sound of it is uh is uh hard but when you get it it's the best sound ever there's so much life in those old recordings 
Yeah. You know, they don't, they don't aren't pristine, but man, they jump out of the speakers and you know exactly where it was recorded and, it, and stuff. So I think so. that's also like some of my favorite style of recording. So, so being there, you could get away with a lot more. Like people weren't coming in there and expecting to see a Neve console or see an SSL. You know, they want to see like something with some big old knobs and RCA ribbon mics. So you didn't have to have a lot of technology advancements and stuff. So you could really kind of push people into like, performing and not fixing so it was a wonderful place to learn and record that that's very cool yeah i imagine that you know because because before you started working there had you learned any side of the recording like any any recording stuff on your own before that or were you kind of just fresh going into that and learned everything there you know i i we had like a, a computer with like i forget what the microsoft basic recorder was where you could like record uh, little things. So like we would demo and we had like a little, co- I had like a little cassette like thing that my dad actually had was just like a little Walkman size thing to like take notes on, you know, in the car or whatever. And I would borrow that and like mess with it. But I was no like, you know, I, I read all these stories of these great engineers who were like, I figured out how to block the er- erase head and I did sound on sound. <laughs> and I, I was nowhere near like that. But once I saw James recording us in the studio and he had a, a, the big board and everything and, and doing what he was doing. I was like, I want to learn that. But I kind of was like, I want to learn from him or somebody. I didn't want to like, I wasn't going to go buy a board myself or, or anything. So I was I was excited to be an intern or be a to learn the craft. So that was exciting at 16 when I could start interning from him. That's very at, cool. At the studio. Yeah, I, I imagine that like just the fact that you started there, um, you know, you, you kind of learn this like older style of recording in a lot of ways, right? Where yeah, like, absolutely. you know, the modern, because I think, I think you're actually younger than me by a couple of years. And, you know, when I look at a lot of my, my peers that are the same age, it's like most people are just heavy into digital where everything's close mic and you have like a million tracks in your sessions and stuff like that. Whereas, you know, you're talking about recording a full band with less than nine mics. So that's like a completely different skill set and requires a different way of thinking. Um, so, so it's very cool that you learned that, that older style and, and continue to implement a lot of that with your own recordings now. Well, it's, it, it's funny too, cause James, who I learned from, who was the engineer at Sun, he kind of was, uh, you know, he wasn't totally a fifties recording guy. He was like into like, um, eighties, nineties, a little bit of recording. Like he would put the mic inside the kick drum. He would mic the toms. He would, so even at Sun, he was still using more mics or recording more in a modern modern to the 50s way of recording. Yeah. And I kind of was like listening and everything he did sounded great, but I was kind of like, you know, Sam had four microphones and no EQ and and barely did he put a mic on the drums or whatever. So like, and those things sound great. So, and I would start taking away mics and experimenting with like not putting the mic in the kick drum, but getting it more outside, maybe using a closed head. I was trying different things like that in my, when in the time when I was engineering, when James wasn't there or when I took over and kind of subtracting and finding the things that sounded good to me. Because as an as an assistant, you learn how the main engineer likes things to sound, right? Because then mm-hmm. you got to get them back. Like if, if I know how he liked his kick drum. So if I went and put a mic four feet outside the kick drum, he would be like, what are you doing? Put the mic in the kick. Yeah. <laughs> I want it clicky or whatever. So you learn exactly how they like it to hear. And then you kind of balance that with what you want to hear and find find the path that leads to what you think sounds good. And um, I tried to, I learned his way of recording, and I tried to figure out Sam's way, the original guy at Sun's recording. And then I do a balance of that, you know, how I think things should hear later. Uh, and, uh, and obviously it all depends on the artist and the session and the song and stuff. But but um, 
you know, Sam did a heck of a lot with just three or four microphones and no EQ live to mono tape. And um, if you can learn how to do that, having 16 tracks is easy, you know. Uh, <laughs> but if you go, if you have unlimited tracks forever and you and you don't make decisions as you're recording and are afraid to, then the the, the music suffers later. And so does your engineering because... Um, um, we have a lot of great tools in the computer, but nothing is as great as getting the mic right at the source uh, and getting the feel right and locking that into tape and not being able to move it later, you know? Yeah, um, absolutely. There's something about that that's amazing, you know? And, and the more plugins I put on stuff, the more I'm like, I should have just, why don't I just put a different mic up or why don't we change the tone, you know, yeah. before? It always feels not as close to me. It's very cool, and it's very interesting because I often think about that too. It's like you know, with with the technology that we have now, it's so easy to just slap a million plugins on, or you know, feel like you need to have all this outboard here or whatever. It's like, but back in the day, things were so much simpler, and people were still able to get amazing results. I guess yeah. you know, I guess it all comes down to you know, what's what is the sound that your band's after if you're trying to record? Because you know, if you're trying to get a sound that sounds like a modern metal band, you're not going to record it the way that they did it in the fifties. You know, it's going to sound no, completely different, not. right? So. So there's there's definitely like you, the music kind of lends itself to a certain style of recording, uh, yeah. You know? But but yeah, I think it's so interesting to think of just like simplifying that process and and really like dialing back and yeah, like you said, like you know maybe not having many mics or limited EQ or whatever. Let me ask you, this, Mike. Do you do you play instrument? Is that do you play drums? Yeah, I'm a drummer. A drum kit the yeah. So you know a great example about drums is um, I use usually four microphones on a drum kit and that that is like the kit then there's there might be a room mic and i i usually plan on like the guitar the acoustic something picking up the drums as well but um i get to work a lot with great drummers so you are hitting the ride cymbal a certain way as you're playing the kick and snare in the hi-hat or you hit a tom a certain way so when everyone close mics your drums and then maybe they compress the crap out of them they're effectively removing your your touch from the kit, right? So uh, even if you're doing a metal record versus a jazz record, if you have a great drummer and you're trying to capture that feel, the less microphones and the less compression you use will get your original performance and actually will sound bigger than if you mic every you know top and bottom head and you're compressing things and EQing things. You're basically removing your playing from the performance to a degree. Sometimes you're enhancing it. it. It all depends, you know, what you're doing. But um, that part of it, I think, translates no matter what record you're going for. And certainly, like metal records, is more attacky than you know. You're gonna want things closer on some things, and the the drums are tuned higher sometimes than like a pillowy jazz thing. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I'm always trying to be careful. You know, bass players, I think it's really common now for people to squash the crap out of the bass. All the great bass players I know, they are playing with their thumb or a pick and they're hitting certain things for a reason. And the minute I do any more than like a dB of compression, I'm er- erasing their touch on the bass and I can feel it immediately. And they'll say, a lot of these guys are old session guys, in the phones like, hey, are you compressing me? Because they can feel it changing well, how they play. And I know when I'm playing acoustic guitar or something, I might strum a verse with my thumb, but then I go to the pick on the chorus just so it's brighter and it's more shimmery. But if you EQ the acoustic to how I'm playing with my thumb, then when I hit the with the pick, it's going to be way too bright and it's going to it's going to remove other thing I was trying to do in the performance. So, um just for, you know, home home recorders and stuff, it's like the the 
the better you can still do metal with three or four mics on the drums or, or hard rock. I mean, Glenn Johns did all that great hard rock with just a few microphones, and he absolutely hated compression on drums. And those records sound huge. You know, it's capturing your performance as a drummer. And then if it needs some boosting or some parallel or some EQ here and there, do that. But, you know, a lot of the principles of the old recording work with even modern, in my mind, modern techniques. It's just, um, you know, if you're doing metal record of RCA 44, <laughs> may not be your best kick drum or overhead, you know. Uh, but um, but I think a lot of it still translates in the sense of, like, capturing you as a player. And uh, that all depends on the player and stuff. Some guys need help. You know, they don't have the touch uh, between right fills or, you know, going from the snare to the ride or whatever. Yeah. But uh, but a lot of it, I think, still trans can translate across genres and records. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that. And, and man, there's like so much to unpack from everything you've said so far. And, and definitely one of the things that I was curious to know about was your drum settings, because, you know, I, I really love the way your drums sound. And I think they've got a lot of character to them. They sound really beefy. Um, so it's cool to hear that you're saying, you know, you'll often just mic them up with four mics. Um, you know, it's pretty, again, like it's it's different than a lot of people who record their drums these days. So um, I'd love to dive a little bit deeper into like, you know, what is your secret for getting a great drum sound and, and getting a lot of vibe? Is it just the mic techniques or is there there more to it always start with the drummer and the um the drum kit you know being at sun studio we couldn't start recording till six the last it was they did tours during the day so the last tour ended about 6 15 and then we could get in there which means you know the artist as they're loading in is i'm getting sounds and then we're recording and you have to be fast because you don't have two hours to get drum sounds because then it's almost nine o'clock and then they're going to start wanting to record. They're going to be tired, right? So you have to get everything fast in a room. And, it, and it's easier with Sun, like I said, because it's it's only nine or ten mics and it's, everyone's close together. Um, but drum-wise, um, so I say all that because I don't spend like a whole day getting drum sounds before the band shows up. Because A, it all depends on what the song is. Um, so quickly, when we know the song, I usually like to have, um, when at studios, I'll have a kit in a booth and I'll have a kit on the floor. And um, they're both kind of mic'd up for the most part, ready to go. And uh, that's like if if I want a tight dead sound, I'll have them go in the booth real fast. If I want it kind of roomy in the song, I'll have them in the in the floor, and they're both ready to rock. And then I always have like um, you know a kick without a head, a kick with a front head, a kick with pillows inside. I have all those kind of set up. So we just maybe we just swap a kick out for a song or a snare, or we you know throw some blankets on the or uh, handkerchiefs on the towel toms or whatever. So everything is kind of quickly adjustable, and I always make sure the kick drum sound or the drum kit sounds right in the room for the song first, because that changes everything. And then mic wise, is a mic on the kick drum. I usually just do like a D twelve, an old. I have an older D twelve. Um, I never do the sub kick. Uh, very rarely do I do like any kind of FET thing. The kick, the D12 gets the knock really good for me on a kick. And it gets, uh, I got mine recently repaired and it brought all this low end back. And it's super easy on any microphone you put on the kick drum to find the fundamental of the kick, you know, whether it's 40 to 60 hertz or whatever. Boost that with like a Pultec or something and get more than enough low end out of the kick drum, you know, unless you have a bad microphone or a bad tuned kick. There's to me no need to necessarily have two or three mics trying to capture all that. It's it's super easy to boost uh, some fundamental in there. 
And then I have a mono overhead, and the mono overhead usually lives somewhere where the snare, hi-hat, rack tom are. And then I listen to the player, and when you go to the ride or the crash cymbal, it, all this depends on the player and the cymbals and everything, but I want an equal balance of that overhead getting the hi-hat, the snare, the rack, and the ride. And so if, if the ride is way brighter than everything and that's cutting through more, I'll move the mic more to the hi-hat side. Or if the hi-hat's cutting through more than the ride, I'll move that. Or even just tilt the mic a little bit so you're getting the balance of the whole kit. And I start with the kick and overhead like that. And I need to get the whole kit sounding great with the kick and overhead. And if I can't hear anything on the drums, we adjust. If the cymbals are too loud versus the tom and cymbal, maybe we move the cymbals farther out, you know, where the drummer can still hit them, but they're not just so focused. Uh, but we get all that, and that happens relatively fast. And the phase between that's incredible. And I don't EQ my kick drum or anything until I hear my overhead because the overhead gets so much of the attack of the kick and low end because it's farther away, it's developing the low end note that it's silly to EQ the kick without the overhead because they're so tied together. And that's just sound incredible. And then I add my close snare mic. And sometimes the phase is so good between the kick and overhead that the snare mic is like out of phase time-wise because it's so much closer than those that... And I, and I do get my overhead pretty low. Like if you're a drummer, I usually have like where your mouth is. I get it to where you're not going to hit it, but I can get it as low as I can. So then it would be sitting pretty closely to like the crash cymbals or you know if someone's got a crash on that side. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why you got to kind of play with how they hit and stuff. And and maybe that goes up then, you know, yeah. like some of these rock drummers all have to go a little higher. But then the close snare mic sometimes is too close and it's effectively hitting, you know, before the overhead where it's in between phase, you know, on the between those. So then I got to play with that a little bit. And then I, I always do a snare mic and I'll do a close mic on the floor, Tom. And the close mic on the floor, Tom, is most of the time not even used for floor, Tom. It's, um, if, uh, if I'm doing a lot of like Americana of acoustic stuff, I hate click tracks, so I never use click tracks. But instead of having the drummer keep time on the hi-hat, because even if you're in the booth and then the guy's like another end of the room, somehow a hi-hat will bleed onto everything, <laughs> you know, whether it's through the headphones or the wall, you'll hear like a pss, pss, and you, know, you have to like RX that out. So I just have the, and also I think, you know, if you're a guy singing a song about, or a gal singing a song about like your father passing away, and it's this tender acoustic thing. You don't want to hear pss, pss, <laughs> in your ear. So I have the drummer tap on the floor tom with his finger. So they hear. Just like, it sounds like someone's like, yeah. tapping their foot along. It keeps time, keeps you in time. It's real subtle. Half the time you can leave it in the recording with a little reverb and it just you feel it more than you hear it. And it doesn't bleed on anything. So I have a close mic on the floor tom just to capture that. And it really kind of keeps people in time to the to a drummer to some kind of timekeeper that's not uh, sonically pleasing and that'll you know ruin a recording later so that's usually why there's a mic somewhere around the floor time to keep that kind of time very cool um and then uh you know it and like we said this all depends like if it's like um, a rock record i might send some of those drums to a guitar amp and blow it up or i might you know Send to some kind of reverb or some kind of effect thing. So there's always that. But that th those four mics are, I make sure my drum kit sounds badass with those four mics. Rarely do I compress those. Rarely, rarely do I individually EQ those. Then when I have the drums as a whole and it's a mono uh, drum, I usually don't pan them out. Mono always to me sounds like it's 
fatter and bigger. Well, I was curious about that with the mono overhead, like if you were going to get any stereo spread on that. I very rarely spread things out um, like that because that's where everything else is living, the guitars, the keys, all this stuff. So like having a good center image, that always feels really great to me. Now, there are times where I'll put a stereo room mic up and I'll spread that far. I'll do some things. Like we said, it all depends on the song. Like if there's a big piano track, Having wide drums to me doesn't make sense because the piano is going to be taking up so much of that space. So I, I let my leakage of the drums in other instruments be the sides, really. Um, but once I have the mono drums sounding really great, if I do any EQ, it's it's actually to the whole mono drum bus because it's amazing what, how... Let, let's say every, everyone... I'm not a huge 1073 guy. But let's say you've got a 1073 EQ on your mono drums... Well, if you want a little bit more kick, um, if you do like 60 hertz on the on the mono drums, that's really just moving the kick, you know, boosting the kick with a little bit of snare beefing. If you do 100, now you're beefing your kick, snare, and your toms. And then between 1 and 3K, you can bring out the, the knock of the kick, you can bring out the snare, you can bring out the attack of your toms, all together as one. And I noticed that by just EQing the drum bus as a whole... I do way smaller EQ moves that do a lot more and, and keep the drums really connected than if you start EQing everything individually and never EQ your drums soloed because they're all affecting each other. And, and what the home recorder should learn is that every time you, you EQ, you're effectively phase shifting. And the other thing I would say to that... Um, for somebody who only uses four mics, this is a really long answer. Uh, no, but, but, uh, but it shows like the amount of work that has to go into it, which is great. <laughs> um, I I am not a different pre for everything kind of guy. I know a lot of guys are like, oh, I love my kick through my 1073. I love my snare through my API. I love my overhead through my you know focus ride or something. All those have different transformers and gain stages, so they're all going to have different various forms of phase shift. There might be only ten or twenty degrees. But if you put all your mics through the same style mic pre, they're going through the same path, the same length, blah, 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 blah. So I always feel like it's a more uniform sound, especially on things that are the same instrument. Like you wouldn't put piano left on a different mic pre than piano right, um, right? Everyone wants to find a stereo thing for that. Well, the drums are the same thing. It's individual drums, but it's one instrument, right? So to me, that all needs to be the same sort of path. So as much as I can keep that the same path all the way through, I do. So so then any um, EQ is usually done to the whole drum bus. And if I need to go in and scoop a little bit of like a ring out of a snare, I can, I'll can i go back. But I always do it listening to the whole kit together then individually. And then if I do any compression, a lot of times it's a parallel compressor because I don't want you necessarily to hear the compression of the drums. I'm not a big bombastic over-the-top compression guy, depending on the track or the part of the song but I want to bring up all those overtones and the weight of the drums. So that a lot of times that'll be like a, a parallel compressor that's done to the whole kit once I've done all my EQ and everything. Um, and I can kind of monitor those together in real time as I'm doing them and see. Um, but there are times where like I'll have on an Oxend, you know, like a Chad Blake or maybe a guitar pedal, or I'll have a, some board of outboard or tube thing that I'm blowing up stuff to and just seeing if it works. I love having effects on sends whether you think you're going to use them or not, and just see what happens if I send the drums to the H3000 and pitch shift them, or if I send them to a guitar, amp, you know, pedal or guitar amp, what happens? So 
those are always on the side, but like you're always starting. I always start with those four mics and see where I can get. I love that, and and, and get it as big as tight as I can. If you do that, um, you're in a really good spot. You know, you're in a really great spot. Then that's very cool, I, man. I think you know, it, like you said, it, it's it is a bit of a longer answer, but it really goes to show the amount of detail that goes into it and to make it work. Um, and even down to the preamp selection thing, I think that's an important point to make because, yeah, a lot of people feel like they need to have all these different types of preamps for different purposes. And it's like, no, it's sometimes sometimes simpler is better. And uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and see, I, I, you know, it's really easy for people to do like at home, like um, record, you know, your however many mics you have on the drums and then EQ them how you normally do. But then... Uh, save that one and then save as put all the drums to a mono or stereo bus, whatever, however you're doing it and try just EQing the bus and seeing how much l- more little you need to actually boost the kick or, the, you know, the low end or the top end or the middle band and see what does to the, how it affects the whole kit. And you'll really see some interesting things. And the, and even more importantly is it's one thing to EQ when you just have that stuff soloed, whether it's the whole kit or individual in the track, have the whole track going Put that EQ on your on your mono drum bus, and then start EQing, and you'll be amazed sometimes at like how far you're you're you go a little bit farther than you would solo, but how much more it cuts through or does this or that in the in the in the context of the mix, and that that is always um um pretty amazing to me. Like when you EQ it for the what everything else going on, as opposed to just nothing else going on, what 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 you do is way different. And um, might feel wrong, but in the track feels so good, you know. (laughs) I love it. Do you find yourself, like, I know some people follow that top-down mixing method of, you know, mixing on the, like, starting on your master bus and then going to your your individual uh, instrument buses. Is that kind of, it sounds like you do that with the drums, but do you do that with other instruments as well? Well, my big thing is um, I um, very, very rarely am I, when I'm starting a mix, am I pulling all my faders at zero and going back if it's something I recorded, I uh, mix as I go quite a bit. So I, I want to get all the faders at zero is a great sounding mix while people are tracking. So like if, you know, I get a lot of tracks that people, other people record and they record the tambourine at all the way hot. Like it's like they smack it and it's <laughs> like, it's a great recording level in digital, but it's right at zero, right? Well, that is never going to be that loud in the mix. So I ended up putting like a trim plug in and whacking it down 40 dB so it's where it needs to be. Yeah, I record that tambourine 40 dB lesser volume. It, um, so when, when he goes up there and plays record, I'm turning the mic pre to where with my Pro Tools fader at zero or my fader on the console at zero, it's sounding balanced in the mix. So hopefully when I open up my Pro Tools session, every fader is roughly at zero and it sounds like a mix already. And then I'm usually so jazzed on whatever we did that day, it's hard for me to turn my brain off and go to sleep. So when everyone else is tired and they go home, I try to mix it a little bit. I do a little bit of volume rise. I do a little bit of EQ, whatever I need to do to capture how it is. Because as most of us know, when we record something, the best it's ever going to sound is that right after we record it, that first playback. After that is when you start picking apart little things that you don't need to pick apart or you start second-guessing yourself. And if you don't capture the mix of how it felt that moment, and usually there's something wrong about it. The snare's a little too hot. There's a little too much reverb on the guitar or whatever. Whatever magic about it, I try to capture that because the next day, 
if you pull it back up and your balance is out of whack and the artist hears it and they, they'll go like, I thought we had a great take yesterday. Do I need to re-sing this because their vocal was too loud or too quiet or the chorus isn't popping out because you didn't have the one guitar up, whatever. So by getting your your balance and mix as you go, every time you play it back for them, it should give them that same feeling back of that first playback. And then it really cuts down on overdubs or re-singing stuff because they hear it kind of final as it's going. So there's no big surprises later in the final mix. You know, you you knock out all of their worries or questions as you go. You, you, you need to do less overdubs because everything's sitting where it should be. So I'm always kind of mixing as I go. Now, if I get someone else's recording in that I didn't track that I've got to mix, I always ask for a rough mix. And that's not so I can try and just match what they did, but I can hear where they... Let me hear where y'all thought it sounded good because there was a million decisions done while y'all, you guys were recording and getting a rough mix that I wasn't there for. So it's not fair for me to get something and and not know like, oh, you hate the acoustic guitar part, that's why it's buried. Or you love the background vocals, that's why they're so loud. Or blah, 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 blah. Um, and a lot of times there, I will try to not put all the faders down, but quickly get a rough with the faders as they are. And then I'll... Once I get a balance and get my pans right, before I do any EQing or anything, I want to get over the pans where everything's sitting great with pans. Because if you get everything panned correctly and sitting together, then you don't need to EQ as much. But if you've got stuff panned together that doesn't shouldn't be panned together, then you're EQing a lot trying to get them to work together. So I'll quickly bring up drums, bass, vocal, guitars, get everything in a like two minutes, get a balance. I'll play it back a couple of times and just wiggle faders a little bit till I've got my balance great. Then I'll start maybe focusing on certain things like drums or bass or guitar. And then it'll kind of like, it's really just what grabs me in the moment. And, and the one thing I'll say is I don't have a template like most guys now where they import their their buses and other things. I will import, I, I still mix on the board. Um, so I'll import, like I, I do my um, reverbs and my, I do analog reverbs and, um, and like tape delays, I'll import those as hardware inserts on aux buses, and I can explain that, why I do that. But I'll import like that stuff and like my routing of going out to the board and into a, back into an aux as my master fader in my print track. I'll import that, but that's all I'm importing. I'm not importing like a kick template or a drum template or anything like that. I start fresh on everything. Even if it's the fourth track I've mixed on this thing, I always start fresh because you don't know what was done a different day or when the guy changed the mic or whatever. It's all different. So I really, as much as annoying it is to like reroute everything every time, I, 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 I'm I already lazy enough. I try not to be too lazy with <laughs> Not that, I know templates work great for other people, but I'm always trying to find a different way of doing something. And, I, and I'm, I'm trying to always be cognizant of not repeating myself too much. Mm-hmm. Well, I feel like, again, that that's kind of like, taking it back to that older style of, of recording and mixing like that, mm-hmm. you know, people weren't just opening up a session and all of a sudden their board was like, you know, set up a certain way, you know, it was, they were starting from scratch every time. So it, it kind of makes sense just based on the way you, you kind of approach your recordings that you would continue that throughout your mixing process as well. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's very, maybe, cool. maybe it's, maybe it's just being stubborn, but, um, I do a lot of automation. I ride faders more than I'm like, um, um, compressing and stuff. And it's funny, I tried for a while, I was worried that I was automating too much and I was making everything fit perfectly too well because it's the best mixes are when certain things are too loud, you know, or pop out, jump in your face. So I was worried that I was automating too much and I, so I started automating less and less and then 
whenever I got in the car and the next day I did my fresh listen or whatever, I'd go, man, like whatever it bugged me about the mix, like the mandolin's not doing something right or the or the guitar here. I go like, and that's the one thing I didn't automate. I was like, shit, I got to automate everything again. <laughs> so it's a, it's always a balance, you know, of, of, of all those things. But it's so much of it is just searching to find, searching what is unique about that instrument or that song and blah, 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 blah. And so to have a template, I feel like I'm just putting in things that I think sound good, but it's not my record. So like they recorded that kick drum for a reason. And I also like to have a lot of talks with them before I start mixing because it's amazing in today's world how they'll send you something to mix and they'll say, here's the files, mix it. And then you open it up and you're trying to juggle all these things. And I'll call them and go, I got to ask you about this. Um, can I ask you about this acoustic guitar part? Because it's really... I'm curious how you hear it. And they go like, oh, I never liked that part. You can just mute it. But they sent it to you. So I spent, you know, I might spend 30 minutes on the acoustic guitar when they don't even want it in there. Or like, you know, I was never happy with that guitar tone. Can you rerun it through something? But they don't put that in their initial thing. They're hoping you just find that. So I always like to have a couple calls once I get into it. And here's what I'm thinking. Here's what I'm hearing. What do you Tell me about how you felt about this process, is there stuff you didn't like about the files before you sent them? Because a lot of times they won't send that, and then you get your th- first mix through, and they go, you know, I never liked the bass part. Can you just do this? I'm like, well, I wish I had known I would have <laughs> changed it, you know, before. So I like that. I do as many phone calls as I can with other people's stuff as well. That's, yeah, um, that's a good idea. Before sure. I go too far down the rabbit hole. Yeah. I always prefer the client to be here. Mixes turn out so much better with the client here, in, in my opinion. Yeah. Well, it's just more of a collaborative effort at that point, right? Absolutely. And everyone hears differently. And so I love it when an artist is like, they're all insecure about something of theirs. Like, you know, John Lennon always hated his voice. So he always made Jeff Emmerich put him in his voice through a Leslie or too much tape echo. That's how they came up with automatic double tracking. Those are some of the coolest sound and vocal effects that, you know, if it was just him going through a plate reverb, music would be totally different today because of that. But because he hated the sound of his voice, he wanted that extra too much echo or that extra too much Leslie effect. So having the artist in in the room with you and, and hearing what they're insecure about, even though you think they're, they have a great voice or, or this or that, and finding that, not the compromise, but the way that makes them happy that also serves the song, is that little 10% extra that makes the mix so much better that wouldn't happen if they weren't here, you know? So it's those kind of things. I'd love to try and hear how the artist hears their music. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I love what you said earlier about how some of the best mixes are the ones where like there's an instrument that's too loud. And and to me, like, you know, that that is kind of like a perfect example of just like embracing imperfection and and like leaning into that sometimes and you know, not feeling like you need to have everything so meticulously cleaned up and you know, or like so perfect and overanalyzed. And um you know, I think I think if if that were the the way you approached your tracks, you would probably be recording very differently than you do, and you know, it's like you know, probably close micing everything, all that stuff. So it's like there's there's something to the idea of just embracing the randomness of the process. And, and absolutely, you know. and how many times have you listened back to a song you didn't go, I should have turned the guitar solo down? Never. But how many times have you gone back, me? I should have turned that guitar solo up on that mix. You know, you hear it back two years later through a car speaker or radio, and you go, why did I not turn that guitar you know, guitar solo up? It needs to be in your face. Here's the guitar solo. Or here's the big drum fill. Like, you know, it's usually it's, I should turn things up and not, I should turn all that stuff way down. 
And most of the musicians want their stuff turned up anyway. <laughs> exactly. They'd be happy with, with you turn the solo up 4 dB. Yeah, half the time your mix notes are just turn everyone up. <laughs> you know, yeah. That's what everyone wants to hear, more of themselves. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> right on. Well, speaking of kind of embracing that imperfection and, and just kind of, you know, with these uh, more minimal style of live recording, you know, I'm curious to, to dive into that a little bit more and talk about, you know, a lot of people would think of, uh, like, because you do do a lot of live recording, obviously bleed is an issue. And there's a lot of people who would say, like, bleed is bleed is the devil and you want to avoid that at all costs. But, like, it seems like you're, you're embracing that. Um, so I'm curious to know, like, what are some of your tips for making bleed work when you're recording and, and ultimately knowing that it's going to work in the context of a mix? I think the I think bleed is is honestly what makes most records extra special. I mean, we we are in a different time now, though, Mike. Like, if you listen to pop music now and indie rock, all of it is dead seventies drums. It's that Fleetwood Mac rumors, like you know. Uh, and I get, it, I love dead dead drums, but dead drums is the thing right now. We went from like black keys, everyone wanted the distorted drum sound to now they want the really dead distorted drum sound and i and i get that it's such a great sound um but bleed when you get um certain mics bleeding into each other a it makes things sound bigger like um uh i always have a mic i told you about my four mics on the drum kit but i always have a mic like several feet back capturing the whole drum kit because a kick drum and a snare uh, up close sounds great, but you want that barkiness of the snare f- catching far away. And um, if when I was at Sun, I had the piano on one side of the wall, and I'd put the acoustic guitar, electric guitar player, whoever on the other side. So those mics would get the drums too, and they would pan. I knew I was going to have the piano to the left or whatever, and the guitar to the right. So that's effectively smearing some of the drums left and right, and, and putting the tom a little bit over here, putting the snare a little bit over here, blah, 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 blah. Those little that little bleed is what gives you depth, um, and depth is one of the hardest things. I think with digital to get, you can put a reverb or a room simulator, but it doesn't make it really feel like the tambourine's ten feet back, or that the snare is you know in the back of the club and the singer's up close or whatever. That's you get that from bleed, and so like when I um like when I do my shaker tambourine overdubs, uh, I don't mic the tambourine. I don't have the the guy stand up and hit the tambourine right in front of the mic because that's not how it's going to sit in the mix. I'll put a mic like 20 feet back and have him play the tambourine and it still sounds close up, but it still sounds like it's tucked behind the drum or whatever. So there's things like that that you can do. And that's not really bleed, but just showing um, home users how stuff can sit in a mix more. When you're doing your background vocals, don't do them right up on the mic. Back up off the mic and it'll see it'll sound behind the lead vocal mic. You know, it's kind of no brainer stuff on when you think about it. But we're all used to like, no, I need to be right in front of this microphone, you know, pristinely recording. But if everything on the mic is sounds like it's an inch from it, how do you put that in a mix and make it feel separated? Uh, you know, like in a, in different parts of the room. So getting good bleed, a, a is all about the players. But you want to get the source great, but you also want to capture the bleed in a cool way. A lot of the best drum sounds, uh, I, I noticed that um, a lot of people, when they've complimented me on something like, hey man, I heard that this this record, I love the way the snare sounds. 
It's always, whenever they've complimented an individual thing, it's always because it's like the vocal mic was picking it up or that that was Hmm. bleed from something else and it was roomy and smacky and whatever, you know? And that was always the case. Um, So a lot of my favorite drum sounds are when the drums are bleeding in my vocal mic and I just, you let it happen. It's like, it's this magic. It also tells you exactly how the balance should be because you have your close mic drums and then you bring up your vocal mic, the drums get pushed farther back. But you get this little balance where the vocal feels great and then the drums are super roomy and cool and bouncing around. So uh, the, the home user should never be afraid of bleed. And once, you, once you're not afraid of it, it's really just trial and error. You know, like I would change my vocal mic. Uh, if you're recording at home and you want to get cool drum bleed on your vocal mic, you know, a U87 is probably not going to do it. It's going to get the cymbals will be extra bright. You know, everything's going to have like a ring to it. Uh, but like a SM58 or something darker might get a cooler snare bleed, and you'll get and you'll get your good vocal sound too. You know, um, so there's things like that. You just gotta once you're not afraid of it, you can learn how to to capture it really. But never be afraid of bleed because that's how you get the best best stuff. You know. Um, yeah, that's very cool. Electric guitar amps, you can put a mic right on the cone. But if you put a mic like 10 feet back, whenever you're playing electric guitar, you're not putting your ear right next to the amp. You're 10 feet back standing up and the amp's on the ground. That's when guitar players go, my amp sounds great. And then they go here in the control and they go, that doesn't sound like I'm hearing out there. You know, we go, oh, I got to change the mic. I got to change the thing. No, it's the mic is a millimeter from the cone and they're hearing it 10 feet back and letting the whole thing develop and they're hearing it bounce around this room. So put a mic back there too and see if that fixes it for him, you know? It's little things like that. Um, that um, uh, at, at Sun Studio, there was an office in the front, and it was just a bouncy, all windows with, like, a tin roof, and it was the best, like, when the levee, when the levee breaks kind of hallway thing. So I always left the door open. I just put a 57 in there. If you listen to Margot Price's first record, all that big roomy stuff is that, and it was the best, like, if someone's playing saxophone... I would just have him stand in the doorway and play into that room and put the mic in there. And it was that cool, like, you know, jazz, old jazz record roomy sax sound that just sounded huge on a record where if you just put the mic right on the sax, it's got nowhere to go, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm still a big proponent of that. When you do vocals and you sing out, when I hear you sing out, I want to hear it go into a room. You know what I mean? I don't want to hear it just be loud on a microphone. I want to hear the room open up a little bit. So... Capturing all that. And uh, uh, real quick, I know I'm rambling on Bleed, but there's an Arlo McKinley record, Diamond Western, we did. And the songs in Arlo at that time were he was kind of rough. And I wanted to sound like you caught him in like a late night bar. So we're in a studio, but we recorded it live in a room. I just had him sing on an SM58, six feet in front of the drums. So the drums are bleeding into the vocal mic. They're bleeding in my acoustic guitar. I wanted it to be a rough sounding record. Um he wanted to punch a couple lyrics here and there after the live. T- every, every vocal take is live, but he wanted to punch a couple things. And I put an SM58 on his vocal, and I had a Bayer M160, which is a hypercardioid ribbon on the acoustic. And it's really good about not catching too much vocal bleed, right? And it's, it's a ribbon, so it's got a little bit warmer sound to it. Well, the cool thing was that on some of his bigger vocal moments, the vocal does bleed into the acoustic, but when he punched the new vocal... It almost doubled 
his vocal line there. And at first it'd be like, oh no, we got to do the acoustic again. And we were like, no, this is cool. It kind of like underlines the line a little bit. Like it emphasizes those lines. So we left that little bit of weird vocal double in there. That's the bleed from the old take and thing. And it just sounds awesome. And that's one of those things that like, if you're just looking at purely from a technical standpoint, that's wrong. But if you listen to it, it's cool. And, and like we, we like on the next record, we're like, we got to recreate that <laughs> weird <laughs> vocal bleed thing again. Cause it was so cool how it just kind of like, it wasn't a harmony. It was a unison, but done slightly different. So it just made that line thicker here and there in some spots and it was cool. Like in the choruses to do that, you know? Um, and that That's was just awesome. by a stroke of luck. I love that, man. That's such a cool approach. And, Obviously, yeah, I think there's pro- probably some people listening to this who are like just afraid of trying to do that kind of thing, right? It's like you, you have yeah. to learn to, I think you have to learn to commit and you have to learn to just trust your instincts that this is going to work. Um, obviously, like when you're doing that style of recording, like, yeah, you're right. Overdubs could be a problem for some people, right? And I, so, so I'm curious to know, like, does your approach to recording change depending on the level of musicianship that the band has? Like if you're working with people who aren't necessarily like the strongest performers, you're going to run into more of those issues, I, I would assume, with overdubs. So does that change your approach? Uh, not as much because I'm. no matter if they're a, a great player or not a great player, you're still trying to f- um, find the right part for the song as you're recording it. So, you know, if I, we spend, a, I say a lot of time, but it's not really, everything goes pretty fast, I feel like. But the focus is like, okay, I've got everyone out on the floor. This doesn't feel right. This doesn't feel right. Is it because he's in the wrong octave on the keyboard? it may not be what he's playing. Is he just in the wrong octave? Like, is this the same section that the bass and the B3 is in? Or do it, is the acoustic need to be capoed up because it's in the same range as the right hand of the piano? So quickly discovering tone-wise, are we there, right? And then part-wise, okay, you're playing where the vocal is. You need to play where the vocal isn't or whatever. And obviously when you have great players, a lot of that is just unspoken. It just happens. And once you get the vibe right, then... Um, as you're recording, you kind of refine it. And if someone needs to punch something, um, it's it's usually fairly easy to punch. And if there is some bleed, you know, like having that far, like if, if the guitar is bleeding the piano mic, record that far mic too when you do your punch so you have that distance with you or whatever. Or like, I just did a record with a guy who played piano and we did it all live in the room. And I got basically... No, none of his vocal got into the piano, but the piano is getting into the vocal some. So, in any time he had to punch a line, I just had him play piano too. Even if I kept the original piano part, I need that piano tone to stay in the vocal mic because then if I punch just the vocal, the the piano tone would change ever so slightly. Um, so, it's just little things like that, but um, it's really not that hard or that difficult. And the great thing about recording now is a lot of times if we record four or five takes and let's say take four is the one, but there's a one word wrong, I'll just go grab it from the previous take if we have a great performance of it and slip it in. And that way the bleed goes with it. You know, you take all the instruments or all the bleeding things together and pop them in there. And then you have that seamless. And it's, it's what they did back on the day on tape. It's just cutting the whole tape and splicing in the correct thing. But it's people shouldn't be afraid of it. And that's how you'll get some of your coolest tones you know and i hear it in modern records there's a artist that my girlfriend showed me dijon i don't know if you listen to dijon i've heard of her it's an amazing record amazing performer they're all playing like live in a kitchen and you can hear the vocal mic is like an omni and it's capturing all this noise and junk 
but it sounds incredible. And it's back to those older recordings where you can hear it's people in a room and you can identify like, I know that room or that sounds like blah, 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 as opposed to when everything's in a booth, everything kind of sounds the same then because a booth's a booth, you know? But I, I love those recordings of Bleed and those things that tell us like, um, this was done uh, this way because it, they have such a sound and they really jump out of the speakers more to me than something just that's mic'd up close. Mm-hmm. I would assume that the room plays obviously an important role in capturing this this character, right? So, um, yeah. you know, you're working in a bigger facility, so it kind of makes sense you'd have more room for the sound to develop and stuff like that. Um, do you think that it's possible to get recordings in a similar fashion, but more in like a home studio environment where you're working with smaller rooms? Absolutely. The first thing I do when I go to a studio is not um, listen to the studio. I listen to the rooms around it or the hallways. So like in my studio, there's a really long hallway that I part of the design was so you, A, you could walk around the tracking room and not interrupt the session, but B, I want a long hallway so I could put a guitar amp in there and mic it 12 feet away or put a vocal or a snare drum or whatever. Um, your bathroom. Uh, there's been so many quote unquote, you know, big records where half that sound is we're just reamping the shower or the bathroom or the hallway or the lobby or the stairwell. All the best unique sounding things are often not in the controlled room. Like I, yeah, I see your room right now has treatment in it. So it's going to sound correct. But a lot of times when it sounds wrong is when it sounds cooler, right? So, yeah. you know, taking your drum, maybe opening that door and miking the hallway and seeing what that sounds like that'll give you such a more unique sound than a controlled frequency environment. So if you're at home, you have it even better because you can go to all these different rooms with your little Apollo rig and try all these different rooms. Like uh, there's a, a lounge here. And then at the old studio, worked at St. Phillips, the lobby, we used to do the drums in the lobby and it was just a room with no treatment, but it was, it was like, uh, weird walls with windows and mirrors. And it was the splashiest, brightest, punchiest room. I wish I did all my drums in there. It was just a pain in the butt to, to move it in there. And then acoustic guitar, you know, it wasn't a controlled sound acoustic, but it was alive and it was bright and it was like smacking around. And so it gave you this high energy, even though you weren't may- maybe playing as hard, it made it sound more energetic just being in that room. And it was wrong, you know, but it sounded cool. So, uh, if you're at home or you're recording in weird, you know, spots, check out all the weird spots. Go to your garage, go to your bathroom, and try to do vocals in there or do you know, acoustic or whatever, and you'll get a unique, very cool sound that, hey, you can't find a plug-in that'll do that, um, and you'll get some really cool stuff. And I would start there before I'd start into the rooms of putting treatment in. You, know, you need your treated room definitely to listen and to do certain things, but then go explore those other spots. Even if you're just reamping with the speaker, and miking it, you know, and sending it into those rooms. That's a big, big part of it. Do you ever do that yourself? Like you'll you'll send some of the tracks back into the room and like reamp it from a speaker? I never get a great sound when I'm like, I've never had a, a really great successful, uh, like just reamping the big studio. I mean, I've done it a couple of times when I need to recreate a, a room sound or like, um, and, and it, it does work to an extent, but sometimes it sounds phasey if you don't have the right speaker set up. But what I do love is sending guitar amps, snares, vocals, whatever. I have an echo chamber here. I have the hallway. I have a stairwell. You know, I have a bathroom. And getting when I want to get like a, a a a complete obvious change of scenery sound, that's when it works extra sweet to me. Like a and my chamber sounds really good here. 
But if you're like sending it into like a nicely tuned room, it doesn't have the same effects as if you just had ca- put a real mic up in there. Um, but but yeah, always experiment with the wrong room. So I, I wired every room in this building besides the bathroom in my studio for sound because the lounge is smacky and weird. The hallway is smacky and weird. So I just want to be able to patch in and capture it. Um, and I have a little Altec speaker on a dolly that I just roll into a room when I want to reamp it and, and go. That's awesome. But I, I, can't, that. I, I can't recommend that enough. You'll get, you'll get some crazy sounds. You know? It's very cool. Yeah, man, this is like your approach to recording is so different than how I do things, but I but I'm so fascinated with it. Like I I I love the sounds that you get. So obviously I gotta do some more experimenting myself. So you know, I'm very interested. Well, that's, in- that's it's kind of the fun part, you know, and it's um I try never so many of my heroes, they just kind of did the same thing over and over again. They found like Willie Mitchell, he figured out on those Al Green records this is the sound I've wanted. And he just kept doing it with the same people. And I love that. Like, cause you can put it on in two seconds before you even hear the singer, you go, Willie Mitchell produced that. Or like Phil Spector, you know, at the wall of sound, mm-hmm. he found what he was wanting in his head and then he had applied it to everybody, but it was cool. I'm always super nervous of doing that. Like I wanted, I don't want you to listen to every record. I go and go, Oh, that Matt did that. I want it to be, unique to the artist and the material and the song. And then you look on the back and I happen to be a part of it. But, but saying all that is like experimenting and not doing everything the same way you did on the last record. And also, as you know, you can kind of come up with some cool thing on the drums for a certain song. And then the next time you're recording, like, Oh, I'm going to do that thing again. And it never works again. (laughs) Like it did. It's like those things happen once in a blue moon and you can never get it to ha- rehappen the way it did before. Like it was magic once and then again, there was magic again. So always trying to find new ways of approaching it, I think is, is important and what makes it fun for us too. Of course. Yeah. So I'm curious to know then, like it sounds like you're running a very analog heavy studio. You do have digital as well. Um, and you're, and you're applying these like older styles of recording. What role does digital play in your productions? Is it mainly for editing that you're using it or or is there other stuff there? You know, it depends. Um, when I'm producing, I treat the, the Pro Tools for the most part just like a tape machine. So it's a capture device. And I do love it because I can automate things in Pro Tools. I can save as and, in you know, save where my mind was. And then when my head, my, when my mindset changes or like you've listened too much and you're like, I don't know if it's good anymore, you can go away and come back to it four days later and open it up and it's there. So I think Pro Tools is incredible um, for so many reasons. I think um, the problem is, I think because it can do so much and it's so easy, you know, there's an old children's book, Mike, uh, if you give a mouse a cookie, they want a glass of milk. And I think with Pro Tools, it's easy to, the minute you move one note or tune one note or grid one note, everything around it then feels wrong. So then you find yourself, and I think with us as engineers, it's so easy to have tunnel vision. We don't look at anybody else right on the computer like, oh, I can fix this. Give me a minute. I fixed that, but now this sounds wrong. And then all of a sudden you're fixing 40 <laughs> things that didn't need to be fixed. And if you guys ever pay attention to this, you'll you'll hear the artists. They'll kind of be off to the corner and they'll kind of mumble like, I'll go out there and sing it again, or I'll go out there and play it again. And you're like, just give me one minute. I can do this. But even if you fix it, they still it'll still feel wrong to them because they didn't actually punch it in, right? So I'll always kind of remember that and go, why don't you go just punch it in real quick? And even if you have to not use that and fix it later, at least in their mind, they've performed the the correct function, right? Um, 
So I always try to be cognizant of not letting Pro Tools dictate the session or run away with the session in terms of what I can do to fix. But it is incredible to have RX and have the ability to record all these takes and go back and steal a line from another take and pop it in and have an undo button. That part's incredible. So I am definitely not the fastest Pro Tools user. I don't know all the shortcuts. I don't have the most updated version. But I do love and use the heck out of it. You know, having FabFilter, having UAD, having um, all these available things at our disposal. And then also to... I love recording the tape, but I love dumping it right after I've filled up the tracks and capturing it at its pristine and having on, ta- on Pro Tools and is, is wonderful. It's a great balance to use all of them. But mm-hmm. but I do I do treat Pro Tools more of, of a tape machine than I do it as like as like a instrument like some people do. But there are but I say there are times where you are, you know, gritting some stuff and coming up with some cool loops that you can build in Pro Tools. And yeah. and also it depends on the genre. So in no way am I dissing people that um, grid and comp and, and copy and paste stuff because in some genres that is kind of the thing you need to do. Um, it's just in in the more organic world that's that's not as much. Absolutely. And I'm assuming you're not the type of guy who's adding like drum samples to your tracks after the fact or any of that. Or am I wrong? Uh, you know, it's funny. I bought a uh, I have a bunch of drum samples a buddy gave me and then I've um I have like um a couple samples and There'll be like one day where I'm like, I'm not happy with this kick drum and I'll open up samples and I'll spend 45 minutes and I put it in and be like, ugh, this feels so wrong and robotic and weird <laughs> and I'll take it out. And I know a lot of people don't replace, they uh, augment with samples. But um, again, if it's something I recorded, I'm pretty much going for the sound I want. And then B, there's always a cooler way to me where maybe I'll run that through a guitar pedal or a guitar amp and add some weirdness and then slip that in where it's still the same kit because I, I, I can really hear a real fast, like, wait a minute, that sounds like a weird kick drum with like, whatever the, it doesn't sound in tune with the rest of the kit. If it's someone else's stuff and I need to help it out, um, very rarely have I used a sample, but it's usually I will sweat it and get it where I'll tune the drum to feel like it's a part of the kick. And then it's like, I always fight the samples. I'm not as, I'm not as talented with samples as other people are in that regard. Um, but we did a really fun thing on this last St. Paul and the Broken Bones record. It's called the Alien Coast. And they really wanted to do something different and kind of like really, um, like we talked a lot about these great, you know, Jay Dilla and some of this Wu-Tang, how the drums sounded like, cool they were looped but they were you know like had this unique saturation and stuff to them and 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 all these things and they wanted to do a way different sounding record so what i did was i had the drummer we mic'd the drum kit but we also put triggers on the kick and snare and we had that going to like a little roland i think it's like a tm100 or something and we dialed in like a sample that he's playing live right so we have the four mics on the drums plus we have the samples recording and so he had to play the kit live, including the samples, and we've had the band play live. And then maybe in the track, we muted the the real mics, except the hi-hat or something. So it's like triggered kick, triggered snare, and hi-hat. And then on the courses, we bring in those real drum mics. And it was cool because it's not gridded, it's not copied and pasted, it's performed by a drummer, but it's those sounds triggered, and then the whole drum kit comes in together, but we worked to make those samples sound a part of the kit. Very cool. So they could all be used together or not. And that was a fun way for me to use samples, but still make it quote-unquote organic and not be uh, copy and paste and just looped, and then we try and put 
real stuff over that. So I'm in no, in no way against samples. I always try and find unique ways to use them where A, it's not um, totally in there, but B, it, it feels like a, it's a it's there for a reason. But it, it goes back to a producer, and if it's something else that someone else mixed, a producer, engineer, and the artist and the players all liked the way that drum sounded. So who am I to go and immediately go like, well, that's not how I like kick drums to sound. They all wanted it. So instead of the easy way out is for me to put a sample in that I like, but the hard way is to make make it shine how they liked it already, make it shine how I think it needs to shine. So that makes makes you better at EQing and, and all those other things by trying to work the samples like the last resort a lot of yeah. times. And if it just needs a little extra punch on a kicker on a chorus or something, try that too, but... Well, that, that absolutely makes a lot of sense because, yeah, you're right. The band has heard it already coming out of the speakers a certain way. And then to, like, transform their drum kit and make it sound totally different, you know. Like, yeah. what, it's almost like what's, what was the point of recording it if it was going to just change all together, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And if you hated it before then, um, why, are we, why are we living with it till now? For so, sure. <laughs> absolutely. It, it is part of it is part of it too. So, but but again, that's a talk with the artist because sometimes they'll send you all that stuff and they'll come back and they'll go, you know, I never liked the way the drums sound. What can you do with them? And you're like, oh, well, I thought you sent it to me because you thought it was all done. And then then that's another conversation mm-hmm. or mind thought on how to mix. Absolutely. The same thing with tuning. I um, if I'm mixing someone else's record that they want me to mix, I, I always tell them if you want something tuned, you need to send it to me tuned. Because the last thing I want to do is tune something and then an artist not know about it and hear the mix and go, wait, did he tune me there? Like that's to me, that's a conversation or something needs to happen and approved way before I as a mixer get it and I'm the odd man out that then sends it back, you know? Mm-hmm. So uh, I don't do any tuning unless it's like specifically asking me of a word or two. But it's always like I don't I don't want to be the surprise guy that sends something back and the artist is then like, wait a minute. They're tuning my vocals, you know. I don't want to be the guy that does that. Yeah, absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I'd love to quickly just talk about uh, your studio because I know you just recently built a new studio, Southern Grooves in Memphis. And uh-huh. uh, from everything I've seen and heard from it so far, it's, it seems like it's an incredible space. And uh, as we were talking about before, like there's just so much vibe to it. That was one of the things that really stood out to me. It was like, you know, it immediately looks like it's something from the 60s or 70s. Um, so I'm curious to, to learn a little bit more about that and what your philosophy was going into building that and, um, you know, what the adventure has been like for you. Well, you know, building a studio was a dream come true, and um, it it just everything lined up in a great way um, for me to do it. Um, and I wanted to do it right. You know, it's like um, I didn't want to do it if I couldn't do it right. And then that that's vague, but um, I've worked in so many studios. When I started freelancing, it was the best thing ever. I learned so much because I'm working in all these different studios that all sound differently, that have various things working or not, that are all, you know. Um, sound different, different gear. So I got to hear all kinds of different ways and things and and uh, tune my ears to those things. So working in as many rooms as, as possible is the best thing you can do because it makes you a better engineer. It really helps you start to identify um, your tastes and you learn, you, you just start to figure out things. Like when you see a room and see acoustics and stuff or, or shapes, you can start to, in your mind, make sense of it, you know, um, and, and those things. So when I built... This studio, uh, I wanted it to be a reflection of like all my favorite rooms, which is like, A, they have, I hate the word vibe, but like we talk about have a great vibe, um, but B, like are made for people in a room to 
to sound good together or multiple people can play in a room and it's not, the drums aren't overpowering or the guitars aren't overpowering, you know, the space. So that sounds balanced. I also wanted to be flexible so I have the hallway and the lounge so I can get those kind of weird space sounds really quickly as well. And um, the room kind of dictates some of it. The, this building is an old Sears building that was built in the early 1900s and every 17 foot, feet is a thir- three foot thick a concrete column. So those columns kind of told me I'm going to have a bigger control room because they're going to make me have this control and be in the square of these pillars. And then I wanted to have sight lines to the room. So I had to like work around the the pillars to do that. And so that was kind of like a, a good limitation to have um, in, in there. And then my favorite studios are like when they're, it's like going to like a Dr. Frankenstein laboratory, you know, like, um, uh, it's not like there's so many commercial studios you go to that are all the same thing. It's like a SSL or an API board or an old Neve with two booths, and it was done this way, and they're all kind of shaped the same, you know, and they all have the same like Avalon Pre's and U87s or whatever. That's pretty boring to me. But when I go into like like Andre in Nashville, he's got this great studio, the Bomb Shelter, it's super funky. It was an old garage, but he made it his dream. He made it his studio or like how Sam Phillips did his studio, or how um, uh, Buzz Kaysen did Creative Workshop. All these guys have their studios that are like walking into their head, how they view audio, what gear they like. They're not trying to be a commercial, like have a bunch of distressors or what other people want. They have what they want in there. That to me was like the dream. And then lastly, I love all these old studios so much. I love when you look at old photos and you could tell what studio it was by the gobos in the studio or like the speaker. You knew that that's Abbey Road or that's, you know, you immediately knew what studio it was just by the gobo or the mic stand or the whatever. So that was real important to me too, that it all be done. Um, it, uh, it all be thought out, but all, but done um, simply and correctly. So like my studio is not built out of anything expensive in the terms of what acoustics can be. You know, now you can get all this wood from, Ecuador, this like laser cut diffuser. My stuff is is simply insulation and and um, uh, burlap and and wood uh, and just live tile. But it none of that is really that expensive. But it gives off a vibe and it's done in a way that feels like you said, like kind of timeless. I need to put up some photos at some point. But the gobos I uh, designed with this guy Kenneth Captain, who did so much of the acoustic b- building of the studio. But we designed these gobos that um, they're stackable and they're, they're, they're stackable but recessed. So you don't see that they're stackable until you lift them up. But then you've got a, like a, a four-foot tall baffle and then a three-foot baffle. But you can take off the three-foot and the four-foot will, will block, you know, the piano. It'll block drums. It'll block guitar amps. The three-foot one you could put down and do just guitar amps. You stack them both and you've got a seven-foot one now that could do you know, drums all the way or vocals and you can block off all those things and not have, you know, a lot of studios have a small baffle and a tall baffle, but they can't stack them. Mm-hmm. Um, so this way they, they're compact space-wise, but they can be either or. And then one side is completely dead and the other side is, um, I can remove the panels. So if I want a live side, I can just take out these foam panels. And like those foam panels I use, I'll just go lay them in, the drum booth are across the piano to block the vocal mic. So they like have multiple uses for just those panels. And then um, we designed my own cue system because most cue systems today I hate. They're like, they have too many options. They're confusing for the, um, 
Uh, a bass player is a bass player. He's not a mixer. So don't give him 16 channels <laughs> of a touch button thing that you got to do the pan and it's all Ethernet cable. That The Ethernet cables, you know, they they coil up in weird areas and they're trippable and they're ugly and they just like, none of the systems sound good. So um, I wanted to have a simple two-knob system. So we designed this, this uh, analog system that um, I found these cool end tables and we drilled holes in them and mounted uh, an enclosure on them that have the amplifiers. So it's a two cha- two big knobs and it says stereo and extra. And then the, the cable plugs into the back of the end table. You can't knock the thing over. There's plenty of room for your coffee or your capos or your picks or whatever. And then um, that cable runs to each mic wall, comes back in the control room and I can send a different two mix to each wall plate. So I could give everyone a different two mix, but I usually just give everyone the same two mix and then an extra knob, which, you know, is maybe that's a little bit more vocal or whatever, but everyone gets a great two mix, but they can turn the volume up or down. And no one ever complains about it. If someone needs just a little bit more, I'll just send them a little bit more from my send. And then everyone kind of has the same mix, which means it's kind of like playing without headphones. And it's analog, and it's a really nice sounding system. So when they put the headphones on, it's like listening to a mix and playing into a mix. So they're going to play differently. And then they're not fiddling with all these sins they don't understand. And it sounds good and it looks good because part of it is like having this great studio. But then if you see like a modern weird cue system, it's going to, even though it's such a small thing, it throws off the look <laughs> of everything else, right? So that's unfortunately how my brain works. So, but it makes sense. <laughs> we did e- even down to the Q system is unique to this space and built with the mind of it needs to sound really good and work simply that anyone can understand it really quickly. And so, like the studios is like that all the way down to the um, to the Q system to the we make custom made our own DIs. Um, kind of like Abbey Road, how they had tech thing. I, I had certain DIs I wanted to sound a certain way and be a, work a certain way. So even down to that. And so the studio has been just a dream come true because it is like how I view audio. And it turned out is such a scary thing to build a studio because you can do the math. You can hire an acoustician. And I, I hired Steve Durr and Matt Schlachter. They were amazing. I had this guy, Kenneth Captain, build it. Um. But you don't know how it's going to sound until you get in there. And then it's got to feel good. So luckily, all those things came out really well. And I, there, you know, the one or a few things I would change would be like how a door opens. I'd rather have it open another way than the way it does. But like, that's such a minor thing. I would never complain about it. It just, uh, yeah. it came out beautifully. And it's, it's, um, it feels the first session we did in here, everyone commented, like you said, how it looked. It felt like it had been recording for 30 years already, which is the best feeling ever. It doesn't feel like, oh, I can't put my drink down here or my feet up here or like I'm too scared to like, you know, touch this amp because that's not how <laughs> a studio should feel. It, it already feels like super lived in, which is which is great. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, I was curious because like it definitely has that older vibe to it. And, um, you know, I was also curious to know because like you said, you, you, you've had the ability to work in so many famous studios and and have that experience of going to a bunch of different places. And a lot of those bigger studios back in the day, like they weren't really built for acoustic perfection. They kind of just yeah. like, they had quirks to them. They, they kind of slapped t- together a bunch of gear. And ultimately that's what made the sound sound the way it did. So when it came to building your studio, how, how important was that acoustic perfection versus having like a specific sound? 
Well, and that's the thing is like most of the studios I've worked in so far have not been the best monitoring wise because they are built in the 60s. So the rooms were short and wide and not deep. So you weren't getting, you know, and they maybe were heavily carpeted or something. So you weren't getting a true playback of what you're hearing. And that's always the big screw mine, you know, screw up is like when you work all day in a mix and then you go in your car and you hear and go, that's not what I was listening to. You know, that's not what I thought I was hearing. Um, and then there's no uh, perfectly acoustic room. You know, I had so many guys, I met with a couple of acousticians and they all said, oh, you got to have this speaker and it's got to be this deep to hear 30 hertz and blah, 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 blah. And um, I just, all my favorite studios are quote unquote wrong in that regard, but they all have such a great sound. So then I wasn't, I wasn't totally worried about following the math great. And Steve was awesome about that. Like Steve's like, I wanted to make it where it feels good to you and we'll do the, you know, we'll get the best we can. And then I, I'm a firm believer in not doing like DSP. Like I didn't want DSP room tuned speakers and amps. I feel like all that adds latency at all. adds phase shift at all. adds these things that like are behind the scenes. I want to get it where just a, a paper cone is pushing music and it <laughs> sounds good and and I'll learn the room because at the end of the day, you still got to learn whatever room you're in. But mm-hmm. this room translates really good. It's actually one of the best listening rooms by luck I've been in where like you sit on the back couch, there isn't a super big bass buildup. It sounds good from the mixer position, from the listening position, from the artist, you know, the producer couch position or whatever. They, it all sounds really great here and feels great. So I've been super lucky in that regard um but i do have a much bigger control than i ever would have dreamed of just because of the way the columns were spaced so my control room is like 20 22 feet long and like 20 feet wide or something like that like it's much bigger than i ever would have planned on but now it's it's kind of cool that way because you do have a, a little bit more flexibility with it for sure um but yeah if you if you're ever trying to build the most perfect room you're gonna fail uh and 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 then the thing at the end of the day is we got to re- remember is that no one's going to listen to your record for the most part. Ninety percent of people are going to listen to your record either on buds, which are which are tuned in their own screwed up way, or they're going to listen like in the car, or they're going to listen off their laptop speaker. So no one's listening back to music in a controlled environment. So it helps to monitor stuff that isn't controlled, so you know like what where many things are going to bump out, and then. I've discovered this kind of recently, but like all our favorite records were were mixed through like an Altec horn speaker or like an Orotone kind of a deal, which doesn't reproduce like super low end or super top end. And they all sound great. You know, like when I listen to Tom Petty, Wildflowers, or like, you know, Fleetwood Mac River, I mean, I'm picking out classic records here, mm-hmm. but they sound good on a horn system, on a modern hi-fi system, on a hyped system, on a non-hype system, they all sound amazing. Uh, and then we mix something on our super modern speaker that reproduces everything, and then we go back and play it on other things, and it doesn't pop as well because we were hearing everything maybe too well or whatever. We we didn't brighten it too much because we heard enough brightness already. But it's amazing how much those classic records sound better across systems than modern records do and they couldn't hear as well as we could in, in rooms that they couldn't know as well. Mm. And there's something to that, you know, like um, uh, what it is, I don't fully know. But uh, um, if you can get to sound good on a little crappy speaker, it, it'll translate more than if you get it sounding on a modern speaker that you're hearing everything and then it won't translate as well. So that's another frustration. It's just like more of a focus on the mid-range than anything else, yeah. I think. Yeah. 
That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, I hear I I have a horn system, and it doesn't have any of that airy top end. So like when I'm on my pro axe, I hear all that six to twelve k almost push like a little too much. So I'm like, oh, I'm not going to brighten the vocal too much. And then when I hear on the horn, I'm like, that sounds super dull. And then when I listen back to like Tom Petty and that stuff, it's bright on the horn. And when I go to the products, it's super, super bright, but it's <laughs> it's like on the verge. But it's that thing where it works bo- great on both. So it's kind of, I'm, I'm excited to now have this horn uh, large speaker system where if I get it, the brightness to sound great on there and then it translates to the products, I know it's going to be great throughout. You know, it's, it's an interesting... Um, a way for me to start start working now with that. Yeah, that makes sense. Oh man, I I could chat your ear off about a whole bunch of this stuff because I think just your approach to recording and mixing and just everything you're doing with your studio is just is really unique and very cool. And um, but I, but I don't want to take up too much more of your time. So Matt, thank you for t- for doing this. I really appreciate it. If people want to learn more about you or follow you online or even potentially work with you, what's the best place for them to do that? Uh, I've got a, uh, my studio is Southern Grooves, um, and I've got southerngrooves.com. I think where it's still under construction. Um, but, um, and then I, you know, I'm on Instagram. My manager's email is on the website, so you can always reach out to my manager. And then, um, uh, I'm not the best about, I'm not the best about checking Instagram, but I, probably the email on the website's the best. And then, um, um, yeah, thanks for, and then I, I'm not the be- best poster, but I do post, uh, when I, when something fun happens. And or you know, oftentimes it's eight months later that you can post about it, but that's where like the 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 little little activity happens. I think would be on Instagram. Right on, awesome man. Well, again, thank you for doing this. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Mike. It was an honor to be on your podcast, and uh, thanks that, for all the great questions. Thank you. So that was my interview with Matt Ross Bang, and I really enjoyed that interview. He just has such a different approach to recording than I'm used to personally, and I just really enjoyed hearing how he just keeps things super simple, and he embraces, quote-unquote, imperfection in his recordings that oftentimes in digital we strive to get rid of. We try to clean things up too much, but he's just like... He just goes with it. He just embraces it. And I think that that's such a liberating approach to recording. Um, So I just found that very, very fascinating. And I love the detail he went into. It was great to learn more about his drum process and how simple he keeps that. Even just with like a four mic technique, he gets these incredible drum sounds. So definitely, if you haven't heard his music, definitely go check it out because I think you're going to really enjoy how everything sounds. And when you hear how he's able to get that amazing sound from a simple approach like he uses... Man, it's just mind-blowing to me. So, yeah, I really enjoyed that episode. I hope you did, too. If you did, make sure to subscribe to the podcast. That way you're notified about all new episodes as they go live each and every Wednesday morning. And also, if you're looking for tips on how to create pro-sounding recordings from your home studio and you're looking to make the process of recording, editing, and mixing your music easy, make sure to visit MasterYourMix.com. On that website, I have a ton of great resources designed to help make the process of making music from home easy. And one resource that I definitely want to point you to is my book. It's called The Mixing Mindset. And inside of that book, I break down the process of mixing step-by-step, showing you what you should be listening for, what tools to be using, how to dial in settings, how to essentially make all the ideas that you hear in your head come out of your speakers. And it's going to walk you through a step-by-step process. So definitely make sure to check that out. It's called The Mixing Mindset, and that is available at MasterYourMix.com. So that is it. We've reached the end of the episode. Thank you so much for sticking around to the end. And I can't wait to chat with you in the next one. Talk soon. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at masteryourmix.com. 
please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit MasterYourMix.com.